hope it's being picked up on the microphone, but I don't think it is. That is an owl outside our window uh, at nine o'clock at night doing its thing. Isn't that cool? I'm with the show. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Wilder podcast. Chloe, good evening. This is the evening we're recording this. It is indeed. We're not weary at all about it. We're, we're bringing all our energy after having to spend a day of work and children. It's good. I'm not moaning. We're not moaning either, no, which is good. Absolutely not. Well, you know, hopefully, I, I've written down we should, for people that are new to the podcast, we should do an introduction. So they've just heard us moan. That's a good start. <laughs> so this is Tom and Chloe. Uh, we are husband and wife. We are documenting our journey as we look to wild or rewild, depending who you speak to, our small farm in Monmouthshire as 80 acres. And we want to document a journey and share it with you and share some amazing interviews along the way. If you'd like to understand more about kind of our vision for what we want to achieve, definitely go back to episode one and following episode two and three and four are the kind of foundational episodes as to why we're doing what we're doing. Is that enough for you? I think so. And primarily because I'm so excited to get stuck into the content of today's episode. Uh, we have two exciting elements of today. We've got our big announcement. So I don't want to get everyone to get dun, too excited. Dun, dun. But we also have our fantastic guest for this week, which is Julia Hales, MBE. So she's an amazing individual who's done many things with her career, but primarily is an environmental consultant and author. And I guess someone like described she's a bit of a kind of pioneer in the world of sustainability. And she's here with us talking about her fantastic nine acre site in Dorset, which she has been using wilding principles on. And I think there are so many useful tips in this interview, particularly if you're thinking about bringing kind of enhancing biodiversity as part of your own garden. Yeah. And timestamps will be in the show notes, but onto the first dun 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 announcement. So let's step into a very short chat, but with a man that is going to be quite important to our lives for the next five years yeah, and, his, and his team. This person is going to be responsible for helping guide and advisors on Wilding Grange Project. Here he is. So this is the uh, big announcement. It is my absolute pleasure to be able to introduce you, the listeners, to Benedict MacDonald, the CEO and founder of Restore. Benedict, Welcome. Tom, lovely to be here. Wow. Well, this is this feels like a huge step forward in the Grange project journey, and a no little step forward, obviously, for your for your company. But we, before we go into that, Benedict, in keeping with tradition, would you like to introduce yourself and how you find yourself to be founding Restore? Certainly. So I'm a I'm a lifelong naturalist, uh, ornithologist. Generally, have been passionate about the natural world from a very early age. It's defined. A lot of what I do, uh, natural history, television, writing books about how we can restore nature in this country, and ultimately going on to found Restore as an organization that could help do that with, of course, landowners like yourself on the ground. We are going to have a long, deep dive into, obviously, yourself, Benedict, uh, Restore, and kind of your plans for the Grange Project in a, in a subsequent episode. So this is a very short introduction just to basically announce that we are, indeed, partnering with Restore drawing upon your and your team's immense kind of experience to help us bring nature back to the Grange project back to Monmouthshire so thank you very much for agreeing to be our partner no my pleasure honestly really excited so can you give us a bit more background about restore why you felt there was a need for restore and specific you to be running it and what you hope to achieve with the company Absolutely. I mean, Restore is trying to fast track private sector conservation. So we want to work with the very best people in the industry. We want to be forming voluntary relationships with landowners who want to seek us out for premium nature restoration service on their land. 
And I think that makes us all actually much more accountable. It makes me and all this store much more accountable for the quality of the service we provide. It means that by partnering with private landowners, particularly landowners at scale, we can move faster than ever before to begin to reverse the biodiversity crisis that is happening literally all around us every day in this country. My aspiration is to start putting nature back as fast as it is elsewhere falling off its perch. And I think we're beginning to see the landowners are not wanting to hang around in this journey of putting putting nature back on their land. Not only for the innate wonder of seeing more birds, more butterflies on your land, but also the natural capital benefits, the ecotourism benefits, the sustainable food production benefits, and the socioeconomic benefits as well. So Restore's been founded in response to a vast groundswell of landowners who all want to put nature back on their land, but the actual business of nature restoration is incredibly difficult. So what we do, we're quite specialised and, and quite unique in that we major in actually returning life, the slogan of our organisation, as fast as we can, partnering with landowners like yourself to dramatically re-envisage and reinvigorate landscapes, often rebooting entire systems, ecosystems from scratch in a very kind of systems-led way. We're not a single species conservation organisation, we're mm. a protectionist organisation. We're much more interested in restoring entire systems, whether that is farmland bioabundance or 12,000 acre valley in Northumberland to upland wood pasture. That's what we do for a living. And we want to really be accelerating the speed and efficacy of nature restoration at scale here in the UK through Restore. Yeah. And that's got to be you know, one of the main reasons that we were very keen to partner with you. So we've, we've spoken to a number of people in, in the industry, in the space, and they all have a different approach, which are all valid. You know, I don't think, you know, I'm suggesting that there's one way that's, that's better or, or than another, at least from my amateur's perspective. But for what fit with us and with our aspirations, the energy that you brought to it, the ideas that you had when you walked around the land and saying what we could do, why we could do it, the benefits it would bring and how quickly it could bring really got us excited about the project. And um, hopefully, you know, this journey will will be uh, equally as engaging and interesting to our listeners as well. Well, I think so. But I think it's, it's really worth saying, Tom, that actually... In some ways, of course, you're interviewing us when we meet people like yourself, but we're, we're also somewhat interviewing our clients. So we're kind of looking for energy. We're looking for ambition. We're looking for wanting to crack on. We're looking for that positive, I hate to say it, the old cliche, the positive can-do attitude. <laughs> it is incredibly difficult. When you're taking an ecosystem and preserving it, you can use protectionism. You can have you know well-paid rages. You can put up signs saying, stay away from the puffins and so on. But when you're Rebooting a system, it requires an enormous collective drive between the landowner and the store. You know, we can't do this by ourselves. We need really proactive landowners as partners. And that's why we're so lucky to be seeking people like yourself out around the country. It's very much a two-way relationship. So I guess coming on to our project, what are your reflections about the Grange project at this early stage? Well, two things that excite me enormously. One is that I think you do have a relatively low baseline that we can build up incredibly quickly. So when I walk around your land, I'm seeing things I see on many other people's farms and estates. So we're seeing nitrified grassland, species-poor grassland. We're seeing a, a relatively simplified landscape. But we're also seeing some amazing hints of life, those amazing hedgerows that you've got that are already bursting with blackthorns and hawthorns and sort of what many people would call an overgrown hedgerow, which, of course, I call a perfect hedgerow. Um <laughs> I think also, I think the thing that excites me most about Grange, it's not the scale in terms of acreage, it's the scale in terms of not only ambition, but having somewhere in, in Wales, where half my family originates from, that we can use as almost like a petri dish, as an example 
of what the uplands could look like if we re-diversify their function. If you rewound to Wales 200 years ago, you would have had lots of little orchards. There'd have been some grazing by sheep, but there'd also have been cattle, there'd have been free-roaming pigs. There would have been a much more higgledy-piggledy diverse landscape. And we know this from the species that were very common in Wales 200 years ago, curly, black grouse, windshaft, red-backed shrike, rhinet, corncrake, largely unable to inhabit the landscape of um, overgrazing that sadly we do see in large parts of Wales today. And I think being able to use these projects as living examples of how you can combine nature with people with farming is incredibly important. If people can start visiting your land and seeing that it isn't some fantastical rewilding project with dense canopy woodland and bears and wolves and everything else, of course, it's a very lived in and practical landscape that's still producing food, but is also producing dividends of nature and natural capital. Then I think it becomes a lot more than an 80 acre project. It becomes potentially a project that can be replicated at scale across tens of thousands of acres of the Welsh countryside. And I think that for me makes it a much bigger project than the map of your land alone would suggest. Well, we could not be more excited to work together to get our farm to be more higgledy-piggledy over the next few years. And just on that note, what would you kind of say our first step will be in working together? Well, I think the first thing you notice when you go to vast areas of the uplands and your farm at the moment is no exception, is the, the pea green field. And of course, you know, it's immortalised in postcards and there's no denying that for a lot of people that deep green in the countryside is very pretty. And for me, it's a, it sort of keeps me awake at night because what it means is that, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing the end product of decades of nitrate fertilizers, these triffid round grasses that have kind of taken root, which are smothering all the many diverse flowers and shrubs that would have been growing on those hills 200 years ago. So when I see a field, I would say, well, why is it a field? If you consider that um, it, historically in, you, there would have been wood pasture in our uplands, there would have been animals grazing under trees, there would have been complex shrublands, bramble bushes with red match rights. So it's going to be a journey towards restoring the three-dimensionality of your landscape. But we always start that from the very, very bottom up with the soil. So slowly soaking the excess nitrogen out of the soil, skimming off that excess grassland, trying to get the soil nutrient levels lower, and then we will begin our strategy of reflowering your land. So a variety of species that have been grazed out of the landscape a long time ago and restoring the, the soil and floral balance. And from there, we can begin to build the system upwards. I love that idea of reflowering. It fits in well because Tom and I have had our WhatsApp group of Grange Project Flowers, which we've been documenting over the last year. So it'd be nice to think there'll be more than just the six we've currently got for the next few years. So watch this space. Exciting announcements I know coming out from left, right and centre, uh, coming with, with from Grace Project and from Restore over the next few weeks. So I'm looking forward to our full and in-depth interview with you. I think after we've had a bit more time to explore the land and come up with a, a more concise plan of action. And uh, I know that there's some uh, amazing and, and innovative ideas that you're, you're bringing to the party. So said it too many, too many times during this short interview, but thank you yet again for your time, Benedict, and exciting five-year journey ahead of us. Likewise, Tom, looking forward to it. I think Tom might just be a little bit excited. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of work that's gone into that. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure, um, and not pressure, a lot of, because this is so new to us in this, this sector, it's hard to find the right people and organisations. What are we looking for? It was a bit like dating. It was quite, it was quite stressful. Yeah. And everyone was brilliant who we spoke to. It wasn't, yeah, an inspirational in their own way. But then it's like, do I want, is that the kind of inspiration we want? Or 
other opportunities out there, other flavours of inspiration we can try and find? I guess it's a bit like what sort of rewilders or wilders did we want to be and who was going to fit with us to help kind of support us develop that journey? Hard to know that if you don't know a lot about rewilding or wilding. (laughs) But so over the kind of lifespan of working with Benedicto's team, we really are going to be trying to kind of document that journey and what we do and sharing that with you. So we have to work out how best to do that. Obviously, the podcast, the website will be there, but how do we lay that out? I imagine there's going to be some sort of map or interactive map on our website of of the project. Looking at Chloe there to make sure I'm not overextending myself. Sounds fancy. (laughs) So speaking of fancy, uh, he obviously alluded to his career within the BBC, but he was a producer on a number of of nature documentaries. And he's bringing his filming know-how to this project and other projects as well to help us document that over the five years as well. So we're going to have the chats and the podcast And we're hoping that over the years, we will have progress videos and overview videos of what we're doing and why we're doing it as well. So yeah, mega excited. And so without further ado, I would like to introduce our wonderful guest, Julia. I think this is a really warm conversation and I hope you appreciate it as much as we did. So Julia, welcome. Thank you. Absolute pleasure having you here. With tradition with the podcast, we would very much like you to introduce yourself and let us know uh, what are you uh, up to at the moment? How do you find yourself in the position that you do? Well, my name is Julia Hales, as you know. I've been an environmentalist for over 35 years and I'm absolutely passionate in terms of doing something that is really going to make a difference. I started working with someone called John Elkington, who's very well known in the field at an environmental organization. And we evolved quite quickly into doing something which was identifying that every single individual could make a difference in terms of what they were doing in the environmental area. And in that respect, we wrote a book called The Green Consumer Guide. It was actually our second book, but it was the most impactful one. And it went on to sell over a million copies worldwide. And the really important thing was it gave every individual the power to make a difference and to show them it's not only the way that you're living, but also what you're buying and the choices that you make on an individual level, but also for the messages that you're sending back to business. And we felt that that was really, really powerful. And at the time, we were really the first people in that space. And of course, it's really gone mad since then. So lots of companies started coming towards us. We set up an environmental consultancy, the first one in the UK, and asking us and saying, well, we realize environment's really important, but what on earth do we do about it? So we evolved that business for a long time. John and I wrote eight books together, and I did run one on my own. A lot of consultancy projects, advising big corporates on what they should be doing. Um, I did advising, for example, Marks and Spencer at the very beginning of their journey to do Plan A but many, many others and speeches on covering a huge array of issues. However, I moved about 10 years ago to this lovely place in West Dorset, where I now live. And we've got nine acres of land. We did a lot of building works, mostly sort of trying to do, you know, following the sort of eco principles. But in 2020, at the beginning of lockdown, we started in in sort of full force doing a, a wilding project. And so I hope to tell you a little bit more about that today and why we got started. When I spoke to you, there's about 14 different podcast episodes that we could go into. And, and just before we go into the rewilding conversation, of which is the main effort for this chat, I do want to highlight it's really nice speaking to experts who have different views. We've had past interviews where we talk about how individuals really can't make a difference. Actually, it should be it's all done now at government level and holding government account. And you know, Chloe and I reflect on that and felt that didn't feel like it was 
actually in line with our experience and our beliefs. So it's very nice to speak to you who has a different view on it. And you know, like everything, there's, there's no right or wrong. There's just different ways of attacking a problem. But I think it's a bit disempowering to tell people that they can't make a difference themselves. And I think it's also really missing the uh, missing the point. Of course, there's an awful lot that should and needs to be done at government level. But actually, you're missing out not only the in- individuals, but also businesses and how powerful and impactful they can be. And in fact, in many cases, I actually think a business can be even more powerful than government because they're the ones that are able to go a bit further than government are. Government tends to go slightly lowest common denominator. Uh-huh. They're not very radical. Certainly our government has never been very radical. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it was? But it, it isn't. And it needs us as citizens and businesses to push them to go further and to know that that is what we want. So they're not going to, for example, triple the price of flights or something or put a huge tax on food that's not produced organically or that type of thing. But they might do things that are going a step in that direction if they feel that the public are with them. So there's an awful lot to do to get people on board to actually saying that that's what we want. And if you take one example that's very relevant to welding that I think that we actually need all parts of that chain to be much more proactive. And it's really sickening that it hasn't gone further. And that's actually in relation to peat, because the use of peat is ecologically disastrous, environmentally disastrous, and yet it is still being sold in garden centres. And people are using it in their garden. I suspect the people who are wilding are still using it in their things, because it's quite difficult to buy plants and know that they've all not been grown in peat in any way. So there are two ways in which they sell them through garden centres, one of which is in compost bags, peat compost, and the other is actually, you know, using them for the for potting the plants and in, in plug plants. What I've found is that the government have set legislation voluntary targets, so really poor, and of course the targets have not been met. So that is really bad. And the garden centres, there's one locally here, and they made the policy that they weren't going to sell it and that they were going to pot all their plants without using peat. That sounds great. But they're still buying plants in peat. Um, I went in there last week and I said, you know, I bought a few plants. And then I said, can you confirm that none of these have been grown in peat? And the people at the reception said, well, I think they're not all grown in peat. So I said, well, would you check? Because I actually know you buy that, buy it in. And he said, oh, we didn't know that. So they went to check for the management and I had to send back three of the plants because they were grown in peat. So in my view, that's part of what I'm demonstrating as a campaigning citizen, that I was educating the people in the shop. Mm -hmm. I'm making it absolutely clear to that garden centre that I thought it was despicable. I gave them a little lecture about why you think it's very bad. So it's all there, not that so the power of the individual, the power of business and the power of government all needing to work in tandem, not to exacerbate that particular issue. I mean, I am very, very new to the growing. I, I, my first spinach seeds, I'm very proud of them, are, are currently just about to be planted out into my first ever no-dig veg patch. So I'm new to this. So this challenge with peat was just everything you just explained is completely new to me. So I'm guessing, and I'm hoping that it's obviously going to be new to some of the listeners as well. What I would love to see now personally is some sort of, I'm sure you may probably already have it, some sort of PDF that or something that shows me the stats about the carbon kind of emissions from those kind of pots versus conventionally potted plants or wherever it might be. And so I can understand the impact that's having. I mean, does, does that yeah, document I, exist? I can summarize the issue in two key points is that peat habitats are incredibly biodiverse and really important from that point of view in terms of the plants that they grow. But amazingly, 
peat, I think, is something like 5% of the sort of world's terrain. Carbon sequestration is really huge and it sequesters double the amount of all the world's forests, even though it's a much smaller land area. Wow. I have actually written a blog about it and I've got, in fact, I think I've done sort of two things about it, which will pull together some of the facts and show you about that. So my view is that it is a very, very important issue. It's obviously not directly linked with welding, but it is a part of it. And if anybody is doing anything that they want to help the environment, the first thing they should do is not use peat and make sure that you make it really known that that is what you're doing. That's awesome. And I'm sure we'll have the links in the show notes to your blog if you'd like to send it over and if people want to find out more. I guess I'm just noticing, Tom, that we're already stepping into one of our other 14 podcast topics, which is, sounds fascinating in terms of thinking about kind of peak and consumer choice. And But I'm wondering whether we could kind of bring it back to this idea of, of welding. And I, I suppose I'm really curious, you know, about what took you from eco principles to welding and also indeed whether there's a conscious use of the word wilding as opposed to rewilding. Yes, I'm very happy to do that. And I hope you'll condense my peak discussion. But I love it. I loved it. <laughs> So yes, one of the really interesting things about wilding and rewilding is that people are quite precious about which term that they use. And I've heard somebody from a big conservation body and they started defining as to what you could call rewilding, which they predominantly said related to sort of larger projects, you know, in the same form that like NEP, you know, where you're doing hundreds of acres. And actually, I just think it really doesn't matter whether you call it wilding, rewilding or anything else. I think the principle of it needs to be about bringing back biodiversity, which we've just lost so much. And I just want to take you back to the beginning of my environmental career, where we were really focused on sustainability and the idea that we should be living within the means that we had and the resources of the planet. Now, the concepts of sustainability, the, the term is very, very widely used, but it's become a little bit meaningless. And I think that the new term that we really need to be um, using is regeneration effectively putting something back. And welding is an element of that because we're trying to replace so much of what we've lost. If you look at our small bit of land here, we've got nine acres of land. And when we moved here, it had been grazed by horses and sheep and it had barbed wire fences all over the place. And it was really pretty well a monoculture of sort of grasslands and things very, very poor in terms of biodiversity. And the work that we've done has really been about focusing on creating lots and lots of different habitats. And that is fantastic. However, to take that to your point as sort of, you know, what's wilding? Someone said to me, well, why don't you just leave it to the docks, the nettles and the thistles? You know, isn't that really the sort of wilding, rewilding part of it? Just leave it alone. The point that I'm making is that um, in some places we've got docks and thistles and nettles and we've not eliminated them off the, the ground. But if you just let them go, they're termed in a way as like the bully species because they push out all the other, other plants. So you want to make sure that you are creating different habitats for different species. And we've now got wetlands area. We've got a lovely sort of chalky bit, a real sort of wildflower meadow where we stripped off the topsoil. Then we've got grasslands that we've actually left. We're not cutting at all. Not so good for the wildflowers, but fantastic for the little mammals that like to make their mess in the wild grass. And then we've got the other bits that we're gradually doing it on a sort of slower time frame. And I think it's just really important to not just look at your whole site to say we want the whole site to be a wildflower meadow. 
you want to create lots of different bits and then the interface between the two as well. And all of that brings the different biodiversity back. God, it sounds like such a mosaic of different types of habitat. And I'm really, I'm already picturing these different spaces and how they kind of interconnect. And I, I guess I'm wondering whether you had a bit of a vision or a plan around what this is going to look like or whether you kind of started in one area and then developed from there. Yeah, how did it all kind of come about? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. And actually, it's interesting because I had two people who were really instrumental in helping me envisage what we were doing and then helping to put it into practice. The key sort of principal person who was designing it is an artist. And he started off with actually a sort of like a real mess of a picture that I didn't really like at all. And I nearly sort of said, and then he, I went to actually have a look at one of the projects he'd done. And I thought it looked also a bit of a mess and I you know, wasn't very keen on it. So I was sort of slightly wondering if I was doing the right thing. However, the other one that we were working with, she really understood what I was trying to do, which was to create these lovely habitats and bring in the wild species, but also make something that looked rather beautiful in that respect. And then, so we got the, the artist who was very creative and did some amazing things in the end to sort of rethink it all and uh, you know, create more of a vision of the whole space. And I had a number of sort of themes that I really wanted. And I called the briefing document that I sent them, let it flow, because I wanted everywhere that you could walk into another space that you never went down somewhere and got to a dead end. So that wherever you went, there was always a sort of another place that you could sort of go on to, but you were going quickly through some of these different zones. And the other thing was not having straight lines. And interestingly, we've been doing this wilding weekend and I met someone there who wanted me to go and have a look at their wilding project. And they showed me and they said, okay, well, we've got this field down here and they're all sort of fenced off. This field down here and this is going to have this bit and then the next bit is going to be a little bit more wild and the next bit there. And I said, well, the very first thing I'd say is don't keep it in fields like that. Break it up, put some circles in, do areas, you know, do a little wetland area and then sort of around to another area where you're letting it go or whatever. So it isn't so much sort of divided by those lines. And even in the mowing and the grass management, which is, I'm sure I'll come back to that later, but it's one of the biggest challenges in, in wilding is, is working out which bits you're going to do what and how it works, but not to keep straight lines. Yeah, and I can um, attest to having had a quick look through your website. I've got absolute raised walkway envy because I've seen them and they are beautiful. This is, and this is not just the wilding, but the, the walkways you've designed around, around the kind of wetlandy bits just look amazing. And I'm extremely jealous about that. And, and also, I think we'll put a link to, I saw an amazing artist kind of impression of, of your rewilding land, the, the nine acres. And I think it looks great. So I think if we could put that in the show notes as well for people to get a feel of the artistry that's gone into the work that you've done. Creating something that's visually appealing is actually part of the mission because for me, I wanted to demonstrate to people that they could do it in their garden. And we are the first wilding garden who were exclusively in the National Garden Scheme because of what we did on the wilding front. We would never have got in on their sort of formal garden side, but it was that side. So we're trying to convert people who are just looking around those nicely mown lawns and gravel paths and things like that to come and just see it going a little bit mad and realize that there's a lot of beauty in that too and creativity within there. So we've got, you know, really wacky chicken house. We've got standing stones. We've got this great big giant chair, um, a bat egg made from glidestone, all sorts of rather strange things. But it means that you're always traveling from zone to zone in our, our let it flow thing, but we're also going from sort of one feature to another and, and, and being stimulated on a number of counts and people thinking, 
they probably won't do all of it, but they might do little bits of it. And, and that's what we want to encourage. I really love the point you were making there, Delia, about meths and our relationship to it, because I think it's a really interesting thing. As a, I think particularly in the British culture, we struggle to tolerate the idea of meths. We like things to be neat, compartmentalized so that there's distinct spaces and divisions between them. And I suppose I'm wondering what reflections you might have on how you could help us as a culture to be able to tolerate more meths and kind of messy spaces within our gardens. Yes, actually, and that's a really good point about meths, because wildlife, you know, loves dead wood piles, stones, piles of stones. So all this idea that we have to sort of make our compost and our prunings and things disappear completely is ridiculous. They should be designed to be part of our landscape and make sure that they're a feature. And I've met a lot of people who say, well, where would I put it? You know, I've got a relatively small garden. I can't fit it in. But actually you integrate it as part of the features that you're looking at. And so we've got a dead hedge Um, We've got places where we put our mowing cuttings and different areas for compost. Obviously, we've got more spaces, but we worked it out as part of that plan to do that. And then also accepting plants that a lot of people would think, oh, we want to get rid of that. Somebody came and they said, oh, well, we didn't want ragwort because ragwort completely takes over. So I said, well, ragwort hasn't taken over here, has it? And the reason is there's quite a lot of ragwort around, but it's in quite a lot of individual bits. And I love it because it's a home to all sorts of species, about 200 species or something live on the ragwort. And it isn't poisonous for sheep, goats, cows, horses, or anything in the field. The problem with ragwort is if you make it into hay. So if you're not making your stuff into hay, it's fine. If you are, you want to really put it out, make sure it doesn't get in there. So the fear that people have, our farmer came along and said that we should tear it out and burn it and really get rid of it and things. So another blog I've written about ragwort and why it's actually a wonderful plant to have in your garden. And I think that's the thing about these things. We also look at um, mare's tail. I've got a lovely boggy area where this raised path is going through the marsh and there's lots of mare's tail. And it looks fantastic, rather prehistoric, actually. So one of our wilding guests said, oh, well, one thing I've learned from this weekend is not to get in such a flap about mare's tail, but also about moles and dandelions and all these different things. And you suddenly realise that they're all these things that we've previously felt that we needed to obliterate. And suddenly, if you welcome them all, you realise that the pattern and things, you're just seeing more and more things all the time. Every time I go out in the garden, I find something else. Because I've let the grass grow, I've let the dandelions grow, I've let the ragwort, whatever it happens to be, and there's just so much loving it. It sounds like you're really letting nature paint its own picture over the nine acres. And if you could go back to how it was 15 years ago to kind of where it is now, what were the most dramatic changes or all the surprises that have come through that journey? It is so radically different to when we came to this this site because it was bland, it was boring. I mean, there was a field opposite our house and we just never, ever went in it. We had a fence up the drive and then just a very unexciting field. It's now our sort of marshland area. We've got eight different ponds all feeding it to each other because it had spring water coming in and going going round to there. And it's full of wildflowers with knapweed and, and all sorts of marvellous things coming in there. It's also where we have our chicken house on a, on a mound so that we can see the chickens in there but we haven't let the chickens out and we haven't got fish in the ponds and both of those it's for the same reason is that we're doing everything we can to try and encourage insects so I suppose that's one of the most striking things is you go into our grassland wildflower area and you go out on a sort of warm summer evening it is actually buzzing and humming with insects you can see a cloud of them 
And I think that is just so exciting because we've lost that in so many areas. And the fact that we have managed to bring that back in a relatively short time and see, you know, one night of a few weeks ago, I went out and there were ghost moths and they're beautiful living up to their name. They're sort of white and and they float around in a rather and I said, what is this? I've got a mild group of people who do a butterfly transept every week on our land. One of the great things about it is because they all monitor the butterflies, we're all quite keen to know which butterflies are there and what we've seen and all that type of thing. But also we can sort of post, I've seen this, what do you think this is? And you get an immediate response. It's <laughs> we found that with with our uh, Instagram page. I was walking around the land and there's this humongous mushrooms. Now I haven't got into my wild mushrooms yet, so I, I, I didn't have a clue. But I took a little video of it, put it out on Instagram, and I had 20 or 30 messages directly within within a couple of hours telling me what it was, what it was good for, it feels edible. And it was just a nice feeling to share it with people. So you've been doing this now for rewilding, inverted commas, the land for the last three years. What have been your most memorable memories of the process? I suppose it's it's a rewarding thing of finding that the the animals do come and the, 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 you know, the wildlife find you wherever it is because of all the things that you've done. Not very long ago, we could see Um, Looking out of our window, we could see two barn owls hunting across the land for quite a long time. And they, a couple of nights in a row, in fact, our our dog alerted to it first because it was looking out of the window and and, uh, obviously had seen that. Um, We have tawny owls um, as well. Also, we have a barn owl box in our wood, which I thought was never going to get anything in it. And we took it down because we thought that we were going to sort of elevate it a bit higher. And then we discovered there was a barn owl feather and egg and feces and things in the in the box. So it had actually been in there, which was also very exciting. I'm very keen on reptiles. So one of the things I was amazed about is when we put the, the ponds in, that uh, the newts came almost immediately. And then we got quite a lot of blanket weed on our pond. And last year, it was incredible. We were trying to sort of pull out some of the blanket weed because obviously you don't want the pond to deoxygenate. But actually, they were full of newts. So you had a challenge between the two things. And I think that is one of the things that you you, you find is that sometimes you want to mow the grass sooner because you want to encourage those type of wildflowers and the things that like the short grass. But then at the same time, you then see, you know, all the grasshoppers losing all their home and the rodents that are making the nest in the grass. So you're sometimes sort of juggling between the two different things as to what you want most and how you to do it, which is sort of reinforces my point about doing different things in different areas and not just um, feeling that everything has to be treated in the same way. I can really hear your enthusiasm and it must be such a joy to kind of walk out every day and see what kind of offerings nature has given you, whether it's a newt or a barn owl that that morning. And (laughs) I'm really excited, just it's making me so excited to think about what, you know, what we might be able to create in the medium to long term here. On a kind of practical level, in terms of managing the grass, in terms of mowing and in terms of managing kind of nettles, docks, thistles, what are some of the strategies that you've been utilising on your land? That's quite a big question because it is one of the biggest challenges is just working out what you're doing in, in the different areas. But also, I might just start with that with people start thinking they're going to create, say, a wildflower meadow. And a lot of people start by poisoning the ground. It sort of seems to be one of the methods that they use by using Roundup to kill off everything off and start again. And I think that's really sad that they should feel that they have to do that. 
because, you know, I'm really against using chemicals in the garden. I've become, I've strengthened my opinion about that, you know, even more than, than where I started. So I think that that's a really bad way to start. And what we did in the wildflower meadow is that we did get a digger to come and dig out and make a particular area and take away the topsoil. And that's actually quite a dramatic way to do it. But there are ways in which you can do it a little more gradually without using poison or without taking off the topsoil. And you have to try and expose quite, you know, a bit of earth to get it. Some of the seeds like yellow rattle take a while to, to really take hold again. The reason that people are very keen on yellow rattle, you know, it's like the king of wilding really, is because if you sow it, you need to get it established on, on very bare ground. But the reason why they use it is because it sort of predates on the grass and it means that the other grass becomes less thick and luscious and it, it encourages the, the smaller, you know, the thinner, fine grass, which is really lovely, sort of the wilder's friend. And then that in turn enables the other wildflowers to come through. So um, things we've got relatively little yellow rattle, but we're sort of putting more in all the time in little sort of patches to get it there. But the thing that we are not so keen on is having too much creeping thistle, for example. So we found one area where it was absolutely thick with creeping thistle. We actually dug it up. I got someone to dig up the patch. And the next year there was none, which was amazing. I mean, really effective. However, there's another patch where we've got lots of creeping thistle. And we sort of kept it in this bit. And it was absolutely humming with butterflies this year. I mean, it really did. And it even had a white admiral. So um, it's apparently a, a relatively rare British butterfly that was sitting on the um, on the sisal. So you don't want to eliminate them all, but you just like, which spot do you want them in and, and the thing. So I do take them out in quite a lot of places, but I leave them in, in others. Their docks are a little bit more of a, a thing. I really do not like having docks in the middle of the wildflower fields. So I have got a, a sort of a, the people who come and help. I do have them on sort of blipping out the docks, but really not digging them out because it's just too much to do that. But basically snipping them off and going around and doing that. So that is a very laborious way of doing it. And I'm sure that there are other things to do, a way of doing it, but quite probably quite difficult without poisoning them. So I think just snip them off and just keep going on that. And they'll, hopefully they'll get tired of coming up at some stage and trying to make sure that they don't seed all over the place. And I've got a bit in the very, very far field where we have a mound which was supposed to be sown with wildflower seeds um, and they missed it. And interestingly, the mound is 100% docks. And I think it's sort of like a little bit of an, sort of just an example. So that's my sort of dock habitat and maybe <laughs> overwintering birds are probably going to love that little dot patch that I've got there and obviously you can't get rid of them completely so they are scattered around the site and they just get blitzed particularly before the wilding weekend because I try to make it look especially nice and then the other thing is nettles which I treat in a similar way to the thistles is that you know keep them on the edges and try not to have too many of them in in the middle but they are great habitat for for butterflies as well you just don't want them to take over so the other stuff uh, has a chance to come through and, and, and really thrive. And the exciting thing, I mean, we started off talking about the fact that I'm an environmentalist, but I'm not an ecologist. There's been a huge amount that I've been learning about the names of the wildflowers and the functions of the wildflowers and what they do. And, and also trying to weave my way through the conflicting advice that I've been getting about what I should and shouldn't do. Yes, we are just starting on that journey and we are definitely finding that. And a lot of the time, it's, there's no black and white answer is just what works for you and, and and what i'm hearing here is and i think it rings true from other feedback we've had is the smaller the project you're looking to rewild the more interventions you have to do in order to try and create that biodiversity 
I guess what I just wanted to, it's a reflection really and then a question, but I just wanted to reflect on how I think sometimes welding gets a lot of bad press around, oh, it's all just going to turn into docks and thistles and nettles and you just have to ignore them. So what I really liked about what you were saying, Julia, is a kind of the nature-friendly management methods you're using and also still allowing them to have certain spaces on the land to flourish. But actually, you don't need to have docks in your wildflower meadow to encourage biodiversity. So I thought that was a really, I really liked, appreciated some of those comments. And I guess my related question is around the management of the grasslands and how you do that on your site. Yes, in fact, I found that the, the, the grassland management is one of the most challenging areas. I'm not least because everyone's giving you different advice about what to do in the different areas. But I'm beginning to really get it together. And of course, just like all the other things, it requires a diversity of approach and how to do it. So a lot of our land, we've got the long grass for most of the time with paths going through it. But the paths are all windy all over the place, partly because I'm the one that do the paths because I really enjoy uh, <laughs> that. But I'm always trying to say, oh, no, I don't want to, you know, mow over that bit of, uh, of you know, that plant or whatever else it is. So they sort of wind through um, wherever we are and take us, uh, take us around. It's a lovely way of actually looking across the site. But it's also, you can see that naturally the land, wherever it is, comes up with different things in different areas. So what used to be our lawn has a, even within the patch that was the lawn is very different on one side of the lawn to the other side of the lawn. So one side's got rather sort of thinner grass and more sort of wildflowers and the other's rather coarser, the thing says. So I'm sort of looking at that and thinking how to deal with that. And then you get into the sort of, you know, the bits that we've got above the orchard, which is mostly, you know, long grasslands with lots of things going in. And we want to go on cutting that twice a year so that we are bringing it down and bringing other other species in, whereas the far field we're not cutting at all, so that we're leaving that for all the for all the different mammals. Brilliant, and uh, and I can hear the cockerel in the background. It's very authentic. It podcast interviews is happening. Yes, and also I I could occasionally hear the baby, and I love it. It's just really nice to have a sort of family uh, family things. And I used to certainly have my baby with me a lot. Yes, baby Eleanor is generally very good, but uh, it is nice having her along for the journey as well. I would like to now, it's been a great chat and I'm very, I know we could go on for hours, but I think it's, it's important that we move on to, you've mentioned it a few times during the podcast already, your wilding weekend. I love the idea and the concept for it and there's lots to talk, but could you tell us about the inspiration for the wilding weekend, how many you've had and what happens during it? Yes, well, a friend of mine actually recommended us to the National Garden Scheme. And I was initially a little bit sceptical, so I thought, well, our garden doesn't really fit within their model. But of course, like everything, I get sort of enthusiastic. So I got them around to come and have a look and started telling them about all the different things that we were doing and showing them the various features. And of course, they got enthusiastic too and said that they would really like us to join us as the, you know, the first wilding garden that was lots of people have done, you know, a few wildland meadows, but to do the whole thing. And um, so we agreed to do it. And then I just thought, wouldn't it be so much nicer to do two days in a row rather than one day, one bit, and then pack it all up and, and, and do the next thing? And of course, it then sort of grew from there because I thought, well, if we were going to do that and get people to come around, wouldn't it be fantastic to get stallholders who could tell people about the different elements of conservation and wildlife and wilding? So that's what we did. And um, the first year was actually 2022. So we've just had our second one in 2023 and have got even more storeholders. But we've got, for example, one of our people were trapping moths the night before 
and we've got them off, you know, on display at the wilding weekend. So, you know, the children really love it because they can come and see, you know, all the furry beasts and looking like twigs and all, all the things like that. And then uh, somebody else who was an expert on bees of all sorts of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. And, you know, he found that there was a particular type of bee that he could take people and go and show that was only around for just three weeks in the year. And it was collecting little hairs off the top of the, the leaves. And then the male were swooping down and mating with the females for the very small window of opportunity that they had. And I talk about that in the video because I've done a number of videos of, about the Wilding Weekend. I've got a short one, which is already posted on, on YouTube. But I've also got a, a longer version, which includes some of the speeches that we had over the Wilding Weekend. Because we got a lot of the participants to talk about either what they were doing or about wilding in general or even about some of the sort of broader issues like the conflict with with growing food, because a lot of people are yeah. always bringing up this thing about, well, if we go to wilding, how are we going to produce enough, have enough land for food? And that slightly drives me mad because actually we could, there's so much unproductive land that is not has not been wilded that it really doesn't make sense to, um, to, to sort of think there's a great conflict with food. And then there's also the whole concept of regenerative agriculture where you're, making sure that the soil is actually going to live on and continue to be productive and recognizing that biodiversity and the wildlife that we are protecting is absolutely vital for producing an ongoing uh, you know, food production in the long term and for the health of us as humans on this planet. And without it, we really are in even more dire trouble. And insect numbers and all these things are plummeting and we have to do everything we can to bring them back and it will help everybody not just in a in a wilding sense, but in a human a human sense too. That's a fantastic rallying call for action there, Julia. And I and I guess for me the last question I've got is around if you are someone at home that's got a, you know, average size garden, what would you be suggesting they might want to experiment with in order to make their garden a wilder space? So uh, you know, another part of the wilding weekend was exactly this to show people what they could do themselves and to give people inspiration and ideas of how it would work in their garden because people have begun to understand about you know Isabella Tree and the wonderful net that she's created but they sort of feel a bit intimidated by that because they can't do it in their own garden and what I wanted to do was to demonstrate that there are lots and lots of things that you can do at home and there are lots of sort of tips about how you can bring back the wildlife yourself but but make it attractive so we started I think by talking about having sort of messy piles all over the place, not doing bonfires, not using peat, but leaving lovely piles all over the place of, of different debris and encouraging this diversity. But I think that also this whole thing about mowing is just effectively leaving the grass to grow and putting the paths through those fields and creating little spaces. So, for example, even if you want somewhere for your children to play or, you know, to have games or whatever, to just have this rather organic areas rather than just the whole lawn or whatever for, for, for doing it. Also really focusing on having bee-friendly plants. There's a wonderful company that participated in our Wilding Weekend and they're called Bee-Friendly Plants and Seeds and they really have an expertise about the sort of plants that you could bring in, even you know, even the ones that are not quite as wild, but to bring those in as much as, um, as, as, much as you can. And she was also quite interesting because she also explained why a lot of plants that we now buy from garden centres are actually cultivars, which have no value to nature at all because they have no pollination huh. um, for bees and things. So 
that's also something that I think people should be aware of and, and you know, has no value in nature at all. You know, double-headed roses and certain salvias and all sorts of things. So if you have a look at Be Happy Plants and Seeds, and you'll see about the um, cultivars. And then there's one other person who came to our wilding weekend that I have to mention because she was so amazing. She's written a book and it's called The Life Cycle. And she rode from the top of South America to the bottom on a bamboo bicycle, which she'd made uh, herself in a workshop to highlight all the issues around biodiversity. And I still haven't finished the book. I've bought 10 copies already and I've got through them but giving them to people and, uh, you know, to say thank you for various things because it is the most wonderful and inspiring book and it just shows you the value of biodiversity, why it's so threatened and why we've all really got to do something about it. So, you know, it's not a wilding book, but it's a, a book that really motivates you. And I think there's one other book that I would recommend and it's called Silent Earth by Dave Goulson, an insect apocalypse. And it also is very, very motivating. And it was Dave Goulson that really got me going on thinking how exciting it was to encourage insects and to understand more about the amazing things that they do. I mean, the show notes are going to be really long, but they are going to be amazing. So everything you're mentioning here, we're going to have in the show notes, all the videos, even the YouTube videos from the wild weekend. And, you know, again, we're adding to our reading list now, looking over at Chloe, thinking Chloe's rubbing our hands with glee and so much food for thought okay so it looks like we're coming to the end of this episode thank you so much for your time julia is there anything you'd like to add before we uh, kind of wrap up yeah so i would just say that obviously i'm really passionate about wilding because i think that we've just met the most incredible apocalyptic time that we're in and mm -hmm. the future is looking pretty bleak and that we have all got to start thinking in an entirely different way and get out of some of our comfort zones and do things differently. And I think that even my wilding project has just opened my eyes to looking at things in an entirely different way. If we're going to tackle the loss of biodiversity and the real threat from climate change, we really have got to change the way that we behave and start thinking in much more a way of everything that we do in a way of being a mission to change things and to make the world a better place. And that's why everyone should be welding their garden, however big or small it is. Perfect. Right, well, I think nothing else needs to be said. So thank you again for your time. I'm I'm very much looking forward to coming down for your wild weekends. I think we'll bring the family if you've got room for us. <laughs> and we've got lots to learn. Absolutely love to welcome you for the wilding weekend. The next wilding weekend is on the 15th and 16th of June, 2024. Love to see you both there. And I've really enjoyed doing this podcast and meeting you and finding out a little bit about what you're doing. And I look forward to future collaboration in whichever way it goes. Thank you. Perfect. So you can guess the first thing we did after conducting this interview was to pop out and check that we had in fact bought peat-free compost for the spinach. And we are, I mean, I know we haven't actually done an update about the spinach. I know you're really worried about it. So Tom, do you want to just quickly share that update before we reflect on the interview? Yeah, well, importantly, Julia, peat-free compost. So yes, they're well known. The spinach uh, left home, flew the nest, got planted. There's a little video on it on Instagram. And within 24 hours, they've been eaten by something. I mean, I, I, you couldn't write this. And I've been reluctant to post the picture of them being eaten because in the hope that they're going to survive. They're actually, to be fair, they have rallied. And I can see them from the window and it's getting greener. Tom has been using his defensive skills to plant basically a six meter high fence around spinach to try and protect it from the slugs. Minefield yeah. as well. 
um, little little pillboxes. But yes. Anyway, we're getting distracted. Mm. Uh, we need to just reflect briefly on that fantastic conversation with Julia. Yeah, just the breadth of topics that were touched upon. And every time she touched upon that topic, it just felt like it was on the pulse. And I really liked her kind of activism. You know, it wasn't, she wasn't just saying the words. You can hear the, the fact she does live by what she believes and what her research says. Um, and I think we could all take a leaf out of her book, so to speak. I really appreciated how, I guess, the encouragement not to get too caught up with semantics. Mm. Because I think, for me, I've been having this internal debate, rewilding, wilding. Who am I going to offend by saying what? But actually, what I liked was her encouragement to really think about the principles behind what is underpinning. And for us, you know, the intention is to enhance biodiversity. Whatever we call it, for us, it's just about what's going to engage people, what's going to create conversation, as opposed to kind of the academic definition of the construct. Yeah, sorry, I fell asleep since you mentioned the academic <laughs> thing of the constructy thing. So, <laughs> and we do have some guests lined up who are, who literally is their job is to write the UN definitions of things like rewilding. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting to speak to them later on in the podcast to go, look, why is this important? Why do we have to define it? And why is that going to make a difference going forward? Again, I'm sure there's things that we just don't understand or appreciate that we do need to define these and put them into boxes. But from our perspective, and hopefully I think the vast majority of listening is about the intention and how to achieve the most important thing, which is increasing biodiversity. I really hope for those listening to this interview that you've been left with a maybe a few sparkles of ideas of things that you might experiment with in your own gardens, whether that's from, I know, just letting the nettle hang out a little bit or whether that's thinking about digging a little pond or letting it be a bit scruffier, a bit messier. Those are certainly some of the things that I've taken away from the conversation. Uh So coming to the end of the podcast now, but if you'd like to follow us on any of the socials, you can look for Grange Project on Facebook or on Instagram or email us at hello at grangeproject.co.uk. Next episode is going to be a doozy. Doozy? Who, who uses the word doozy, Tom? I don't know. What does I it just, even mean? It came into my head and I said it. <laughs> I'm just like...